WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to the show and our program, John Bonifaz, political activist in located in Amherst. He is the founder and president of Free Speech for People. I must admit that I'm always in awe of John because he's always a half a dozen steps ahead of me. I remember this goes back to shortly after Donald Trump was sworn in as president, and I attended event an event at the Black Sheep Deli in Amherst, and John was speaking and calling for the impeachment of Donald Trump on the basis of the Emoluments Clause, one of the many reasons Trump should have been and could have been but wasn't ultimately uh, uh, convicted, impeached and convicted and thrown out of office. John was one of the first to say, look, Trump's involvement with his businesses is a screaming conflict of interest, which it was. He was right. Uh, Congress should have paid more attention to John Bonifaz. John, thank you so much for being with us. I think I'd like to start by having you share with our listeners who don't know what free speech for people is and what it does. And then I really do want to get into some of the cases you're doing because they're fascinating, they're underreported, and they're really important. Talk to us about what free speech for people is and does. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be with you again, and I appreciate that kind and generous introduction. So Free Speech for People is a national nonprofit organization dedicated to defending our democracy and our Constitution. We engage in legal advocacy, public education, organizing all across the country, challenging big money in politics, confronting corruption in government, unchecked corporate power, uh, and protecting our right to vote and our elections. And this is an existential moment for our democracy, and we're proud to be joining with people all over the country and standing up to defend it. I, I want to ask you about the cases, some of the cases that Free Speech for People uh, is litigating. I, I'd first like to get your reaction, if I might, since you posed the question so well. What do you think of the convictions of the Oath Keepers yesterday for seditious conspiracy? And do you think that these uh, prosecutions by the Department of Justice somehow will bring or can bring uh, some equilibrium to our democracy, which seems to be, well, listing badly? Well, I think the convictions are very significant, and I'm, I'm glad the Justice Department is pursuing those cases. I will say, however, that the Justice Department has been slow to pursue the cases against the higher-ups, including the insurrectionists in chief, Donald Trump. I know there's now a special counsel that's looking into this, but we are two years past the insurrection and with zero accountability yet for Donald Trump and his associates, we create the dangerous uh, moment that, that we're in here where, where Donald Trump is engaged in promoting the big lie further all across the country and instigating acts of, of political violence. Uh, so that, that's why we have serious concerns as to how slow the Department of Justice has acted with respect to him and his associates. But certainly the, the Oath Keepers' uh, sedition uh, trial and, and the conviction of them is significant and will be used on our end with respect to challenges we intend to bring to Donald Trump's eligibility to appear on the ballot. Spend a minute with us on that, his ineligibility to appear on the ballot. Why? Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, otherwise known as the Insurrectionist Disqualification Clause, makes clear that anyone who takes an oath of office and then engages in insurrection or gives aid or comfort to it is forever barred from holding public office again. This was placed in the 14th Amendment during the Reconstruction era, and the framers of the 14th Amendment after the Civil War were focused in part on ex-Confederates who were in positions of government power or sought to retain or regain positions of government power. And they were clear that these ex-Confederates who had led the first insurrection in our nation's history uh, were threats to the republic and could not maintain any positions of government power, could not be in public office again. But they were also clear in their debate that it would not apply solely to the ex-Confederates, that it would be prospective and apply to any future insurrection. And we now have the second insurrection in our nation's history on January 6, 2021. Donald Trump incited 
mobilize and encourage that insurrection. And there is no one more disqualified today under the insurrection's disqualification clause than Donald Trump himself. All right. I understand what the clause says, and I understand your position with regard to, and Free Speech for People's position with regard to Donald Trump. And it seems to me factually it's correct with it beyond beyond all question. But the 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 question I do have for you is who makes that determination? Who is it Congress? Is it a court? Who decides that Trump is guilty of insurrection or is there more than one body that has that authority? So, Bill, as, as you know, I have a 16-year-old daughter. She's a very active political activist already. Um, and she, I think, would make a great candidate for president of the United States. But if she were to petition a secretary of state in, in this country to appear on the state ballot, that secretary of state would have the responsibility to say, no, you're not qualified under the age qualification. You have to be 35 to be president of the United States. She wouldn't have met that age qualification, at least not yet. And so just like secretaries of state have the responsibility to regulate their state ballots for other constitutional qualifications, including age, citizenship, residency, they have the responsibility to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and ensure that anyone who is disqualified under that constitutional provision does not appear on their state ballot. And that's why our campaign at TrumpIsDisqualified.org, which we've launched with Mi Familia Vota National Latino Voting Rights Organization, is focused on pressuring secretaries of state and chief election officials all across the country to do their job to uphold the mandate of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and to bar Donald Trump from the ballot. And would this be a determination by the individual secretaries of state saying, I have determined that Trump is guilty of insurrection? So there could be, well, we have 50 secretaries of state. Uh, there could be 50 different determinations. Yes. Or and Donald Trump, of course, would have his due process in court to challenge that determination if it went against him. But look, Secretary Shamia Fagan, who's the secretary of state of the state of Oregon, made a decision not too long ago, that Nicholas Kristof, a well-respected columnist from the New York Times who had his home previously in Oregon, who decided to give up that column, go back to Oregon and run for Democratic uh, governor on the Democratic side, she decided, based on his failure to live in the, in the state for three consecutive months, not meeting the state constitutional residency requirements, she decided that he was barred from the ballot, that he was not qualified. She decided that on her own. And then he went ahead and sued in state court to challenge that determination. And he went before the state Supreme Court and he lost unanimously. They upheld her decision. So this is not anything new. Secretaries of state have the ability and the power to determine who shall be on their state ballots based on constitutional qualifications. And they also have the duty to do that. Uh, and so just like they have the duty to determine that somebody doesn't meet the residency requirements in their state, they have the duty to determine, in this case, that Donald Trump is disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. If he doesn't like the decision they make, he can sue in the courts, and the courts can further review that decision. But the evidence is overwhelming from the House Select Committee report and so much else that Donald Trump incited, mobilized, and encouraged this investigation. So it's not going to take a lot of independent research and investigative work by a secretary of state to make this determination on their own. I would think, John, that some of our listeners are saying, okay, I understand that, and Trump, in my mind, is disqualified from being president, but I'm concerned about one person in a state determining that someone who obviously millions of voters want to vote for shouldn't appear on the ballot, and that it's not a particularly democratic process, understanding, not, notwithstanding the obligations of secretaries of state to enforce their state laws. What's your response to that? Well, our response is if, if we don't want the, the amendment there in, in the Constitution, then there should be an effort to amend the Constitution to repeal it. Uh, but the fact is it's there in the Constitution, just like the other qualifications are there. And, and it's not the case that anyone can get on the ballot to run for president or for any other office, just as I said regarding my example of my 16-year-old daughter. It's not that everyone 
can can get on the ballot. You have to meet those constitutional qualifications. And there's a process in every state for making that determination. In some states, I should say, it's a board of elections, not a secretary of state. But whatever that process is for each state, they need to go through it and they need to make that determination. And then I'm sure there will be follow-up litigation in the courts uh, after that determination is made. But, you know, it, it would be a serious blow to our Constitution and to the protection of our republic to just ignore this critical provision of the 14th Amendment and say, well, we no longer really believe in it and we're just going to repeal it in de facto without even going through the process of a constitutional amendment to do so. And we're just going to say it's a dead letter. That That is a huge strategic uh, error in, my, in our view from a constitutional perspective and, and, and cannot happen. This is, uh, this is a provision designed to protect our republic, and it must be upheld by secretaries of state. Last question on this aspect of, of, the, of this uh, endeavor. Are you concerned at all that this way of uh, approaching elections uh, and use of the individual secretaries of state could be turned against progressives, could be usurped and used by the right wing to keep legitimate candidates off the ballot? Well, you know, you started uh, in the introduction highlighting our work at Free Speech for People calling for the impeachment of Donald Trump soon after he took the oath of office. And we heard then people saying, well, what you're going to do is politicize the impeachment process when the, Dem- when the Democrats potentially lose the House as they now have. Republicans will use it to impeach the, the following Democratic president. And our response to that is the same as the response to this kind of question. We cannot fear the rogue abuse of power to uphold the Constitution. In the case of Donald Trump, he was clearly impeachable from the moment he took the oath of office for not divesting from his business interests in violation of the emoluments clauses. And here, there is clear evidence that Donald Trump engaged in the January 6th insurrection, encouraged and aided it, mobilized it. Uh, and, And so, yeah, it's possible that rogue actors will try to abuse their power and use Section 3 of the 14th Amendment in a way that is contrary to what was intended by the framers and claim some insurrection that a Democratic candidate or another candidate engaged in and try to bar them from the ballot. But that fear of rogue abuse of power should not stop us from upholding the Constitution when it's very clear that Donald Trump is disqualified. I understand the position. What I'd like to know now is what is happening with this campaign that is undertaken by Free Speech for People. Are you getting responses from Secretary of State? Is it too early for determinations to be made procedurally? Where does this stand? So you're you're right. It it is, in fact, uh, moving forward. We are getting responses from Secretaries of State. We are meeting with a number of them. We also are engaged in public education organizing with allies in in many targeted states. And as I said, our national partner on this is Mi Familia Vota. We had an event in Denver, Colorado, on the anniversary of the insurrection on January 6th, where we were calling on Secretary Jenna Griswold of, of Colorado to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment against Donald Trump. We had a similar kind of event uh, in other places. And we, in fact, have heard from certain secretaries of state who are seriously uh, considering this. I will say in our own state here in Massachusetts, uh, Secretary of State Bill Galvin has gone on record during the Democratic primary last fall against Tanisha Sullivan, who did say she would enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment against Donald Trump. His response was to say that he couldn't do so without a criminal conviction. Now, this is total fiction. There's nothing in the text of this provision that says a criminal conviction is required before enforcing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And further, two separate courts in the case of Marjorie Taylor Greene, which we brought in the state of Georgia, and in the case of a county commissioner in New Mexico, which our ally Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington brought. In both of those court cases, the courts ruled that no criminal conviction is necessary 
foreign sec- enforcing Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. So this is just actually a, a, a fiction. There's no truth to that claim. But Secretary Galvin's made it, and he needs to be challenged on it. He needs to be shown why he's wrong and why he has a responsibility to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment on, against Donald Trump and keep him off the Massachusetts Republican primary ballot. We're speaking with John Boniface, <clears throat> excuse me, Attorney Boniface, as the founder and president of Free Speech for People, a national organization with a headquarters in Amherst. We'll continue our conversation with John Boniface right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts' way of saying we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015-1400-1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. Most of us participate in sports like the weekly golf game, tennis match, trail run, or ski outing. Whether you're a high school, collegiate, or professional athlete, or weekend warrior, the same rules apply. Follow an exercise regimen that will help you build a strong foundation and prevent injury in the first place. I'm Dr. Connor Ziegler, sports medicine specialist and board-certified orthopedic surgeon at New England Orthopedic Surgeons. Sports medicine is my passion, and my surgical specialty involves arthroscopic and open procedures of the shoulder, elbow, hip, and knee. One of the most common injuries I treat are anterior cruciate ligament or ACL tears, which typically occur from non-contact twisting injuries in a variety of sports. Not infrequently, ACL tears occur with injury to other structures as well. At New England Orthopedic Surgeons, we offer comprehensive management of your condition no matter the severity. But if you find that you've experienced an injury, my surgical team is dedicated to providing outstanding care to help you recover and get you back in the game. For more information, visit neortho.com. Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Attorney John Boniface, the founder and president of the Amherst-based national organization Free Speech for People. We were talking during the break about what Free Speech for People had litigated with regard to Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I had raised the question with you of what's next with regard to this challenge to try to exclude Donald Trump from being on the ballot in various states in the next presidential cycle, and specifically with regard to being a Republican primary uh, candidate for his party's nomination for president. Tell us where that stands, John, if you would, please. And I would appreciate if you could refer back to Marjorie Taylor Greene and what Free Speech for People did, what the court case was in with regard to her. Yes. So last year, we initiated a series of legal challenges against certain congressional 
candidates and one Secretary of State candidate under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. There are a number of states that allow for voter challenges to be brought. Voters themselves can go into court and challenge the eligibility of a candidate to appear on the ballot based on not meeting any of the constitutional qualifications. Uh, and we brought a case against Marjorie Taylor Greene, the state of Georgia. We challenged her eligibility based on her role uh, in the insurrection. She rushed into federal court as a result of that challenge that we brought before the state proceedings, and she tried to stop it altogether. Uh, she argued that her First Amendment rights were being violated. Uh, she argued that an 1872 statute that gave amnesty to ex-Confederates applied to her as well. Uh, she made a number of, of arguments. None of them succeeded. A 73-page ruling was issued by a federal judge, Amy Totenberg, uh, in Atlanta that dismissed all of them and made clear that she had a duty to show up and appear under oath. Uh, first time a member of Congress would need to testify publicly under oath about their role in insurrection. And so she was forced to do so. We had an administrative law judge overseeing that hearing. Uh, she gave three hours of what I would say was evasive testimony. She claimed she couldn't recall uh, anything, frankly, uh, of substance with respect to the questions she was asked by our co-counsel. Uh, and ultimately, the judge decided to take her as a, as a credible witness, incredibly, that he did so, uh, and, and, and ruled that there was not sufficient evidence uh, showing that she engaged in insurrection. But what's important about the precedent set in that case is not just that there's no criminal conviction required to enforce Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, but that the states do have a duty and a role to determine who shall be on their ballot, and that there was no ability to get the federal courts to block that hearing. We also brought cases against Madison Cawthorn uh, in North Carolina, where, where we won a federal appeals court ruling establishing that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies to the modern-day January 6th insurrectionists. Uh, and we brought cases in Arizona against Paul Gosar, Andy Biggs, uh, both of whom were candidates for Congress and got reelected as a result of being led on the ballot, in our view, unlawfully. Uh, and Mark Fincham, who was a Secretary of State candidate, an election denier, who actually ended up losing. But all these cases provide, for, in our view, the precedent to pursue challenges against Donald Trump. And we will do so. In targeted states, we're not ready to announce where we're going to go with these challenges. But Donald Trump will be challenged by voters in targeted states for not being eligible to be on their ballots. I started this conversation with you this morning, John, by asking about the convictions for seditious conspiracy yesterday with regard to the Oath Keepers. Donald Trump, of course, uh, stated with regard to the Proud Boys, uh, another group in league with the Oath Keepers, to stand back and stand by, and made, of course, any number of other statements that implicate him as a co-conspirator. Does the conviction... Of the, do the convictions of the Oath Keepers strengthen the case against Donald Trump and keeping him off the ballot? Well, I think they certainly strengthen the case that this was an insurrection. So that's been one of the first claims made by Donald Trump and his allies, that this was not an insurrection. This was simply a political protest. Uh, no one, you know, did anything wrong, right? I mean, there are certain statements Donald Trump has made that just paints a, a false picture of what happened. And these cases help demonstrate, yes, this was an insurrection. They're basically being convicted for the crime of insurrection, in effect. Uh, and that, that supports the argument against Donald Trump. As for his own engagement in the insurrection, there is some evidence coming forward in these trials as to how uh, these individuals relied on Donald Trump uh, that they were mobilized, cited by him to take the actions they took, uh, and all that will help as well. But the House Select Committee's report uh, that came out last uh, year, or frankly, early part of this year, uh, with respect to Donald Trump's role in the insurrection will be Exhibit A. I mean, it's a voluminous report, 800-plus pages, demonstrates uh, overwhelmingly that Donald Trump incited this insurrection and mobilized it. 
and, and sat back while it was going on, giving aid and comfort to it. So I think that all this will be presented at any challenge we bring uh, in court proceedings against Donald Trump's eligibility. I know you just said you're not going to reveal at this point which states you're going to uh, litigate this issue in or intend to litigate this issue in. Can you tell us when you might, you meaning free speech for people, might be filing these lawsuits? Well, what I can say is that the decision-making by secretaries of state uh, and chief election officials begins uh, in the fall of this year for the Republican primary ballots um, that begin in early 2024. So uh, that will be the time frame in general. But beyond that, I'm not able to highlight the timing on our end. Okay. Well, I want to get you back on the show, John, so I can press you further on this. I really want to learn more. And I think our listeners do, too. I want, to pre- I want to express my appreciation to you for being with us today and, of course, for the work of free speech for people who really are really grateful for all you do to try to preserve and protect democracy. John Boniface, thanks so very much. Thank you, Bill. Great to be with you. Get in on the conversation. Call 413-586-7140. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Yankee Candle's parent company is making transition plans, which will result in the closure of the division's corporate headquarters in South Deerfield. Newell Brands, owner of Yankee Candle, will be cutting 13% of their office employees throughout the company. Newell Brands CEO Ravi Salagram announced Monday the brand will be restructuring for efficiency purposes. Employees who were impacted were notified by email yesterday. Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner says the city is working on an alternative solution to the police chief's proposal to cut the night shift and turn over responsibility to state police. Cutting the midnight shift was the least bad option of a situation where there were no good choices. The mayor said when city councilors voted to reduce the police department budget by $425,000 last spring, they had been warned of the potential for the night shift to be cut, among other options. It was a reactionary cut on their part without any basis for making that decision apart from their own agenda or whatever it was that they said at the time, sending a message. The Greenfield Public Safety Commission plans to meet to discuss how to remedy the situation. And a Palmer man is celebrating today. Wayne Doyle has claimed a $1 million prize before taxes in the lottery's 50 times the money instant ticket game on January 12th. Mixture of sun and clouds today with a high of 38 to 42. Scattered clouds early tonight, then increasing clouds overnight, a low of 20 to 26. Mostly cloudy tomorrow, snow arriving around noontime, a high of 34 to 38. That snow changes to a wintry mix Wednesday night. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Los funcionarios de salud de Estados Unidos quieren que las vacunas contra el COVID-19 se parezcan más a la vacuna anual contra la gripe. La Administración de Alimentos y Medicamentos propuso el lunes un enfoque simplificado para futuros esfuerzos de vacunación, lo que permite que la mayoría de los adultos y niños reciban una vacuna una vez al año para protegerse contra el virus mutante. Esto significa que los estadounidenses ya no tendrán que hacer un seguimiento de cuántas vacunas han recibido o cuántos meses han pasado desde su último refuerzo. La propuesta surge cuando las vacunas de refuerzo se han vuelto difíciles de vender. Si bien más del 80% de la población de Estados Unidos ha recibido al menos una dosis de vacuna, solo el 16% de los elegibles han recibido los últimos refuerzos autorizados en agosto. La FDA le pedirá a su panel de expertos externos en vacunas que participen en una reunión el jueves. Se espera que la agencia tenga en cuenta sus consejos al decidir los futuros requisitos de vacunas para los fabricantes. En otras informaciones, el presidente Joe Biden persuadió a los demócratas en el Congreso para que proporcionaran cientos de miles de millones de dólares para combatir el cambio climático. Ahora viene otra tarea formidable, atraer a los estadounidenses para que compren millones de autos eléctricos, bombas de calor, paneles solares y electrodomésticos más eficientes. Pero también significa que la batalla de la administración contra el calentamiento global se librará un hogar a la vez. Biden reconoció el obstáculo durante una reunión reciente del gabinete cuando 
habló sobre los incentivos que estarán disponibles este año. Las encuestas muestran que si bien los estadounidenses apoyan las acciones para frenar el cambio climático, en general desconocen la ley de reducción de la inflación, la legislación masiva que incluye incentivos financieros para reducir las emisiones y son escépticos sobre su propio papel en la crisis climática. Yo soy Johan Rashid Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Last week, the Northampton City Council passed an ordinance restricting the number of pot shops here in Northampton. There has been significant coverage on this and a lot of space given to this issue in the Daily Hampshire Gazette on the editorial page, including op-eds. There are a couple more letters today, which I'd like to start, share, start with by sharing with you. Uh, supports cap on cannabis retailers. This from William Donnelly in Florence. Having read the guest column of City Councilor President Jim Nash and former City Councilor Dennis Bidwell, cannabis cap would have made sense five years ago. I find, I find their opinion and discussion a bit troubling. And the letter writer goes on to describe uh, the arguments uh, that he does not fully accept uh, from uh, Council President Jim Nash and former city councilor Dennis Bidwell, saying that this would have made sense five years ago, but this cap now doesn't make sense. Uh, The, there is a second letter as well, this from Mary Ingari, I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. Twelve pot shops are enough is the top, is the uh, head, headline. I am writing in favor of capping the number of marijuana dispensaries in Northampton. We have the most dispensaries per capita than any other city in Massachusetts. At a recent city council meeting, the vast majority of citizens spoke out in favor of a cap because of the harmful effects of this drug on teenagers' health and social development. The city council voted in favor of a cap following a lengthy discussion. We now have 11 pot shops, and one more can be added if there is a 12 dispensary limit, which there now is. Uh, well, they're now subject to the mayor's uh, uh, signing, signing this into law. The, mayor, the, the letter concludes that should be enough, meaning 12 dispensaries. Any more than that would diminish Northampton's reputation as a center for culture and the arts. We have with us today to discuss this a proponent of this uh, of this ordinance, Karen Foster, who is the Ward 2 City Councilor and the Vice President of the Northampton City Councilor. Welcome back to the show, Karen. Thanks Karen, for having me. Councilor, so happy to have you with us. Uh, so I, there is some confusion, I think, about whether the City Council has, in fact, capped the a number of pot shops in Northampton at a dozen. And my understanding is that's not exactly right because there are a couple of more uh, um, uh, uh, agreements that have been signed uh, that are already in place. That doesn't mean the shops will open, but there are two more. So that there really are 11 operating now, one that is closed, one more that could plus, the, plus two others. Am I wrong about that? This ordinance, like you know, like all things, is pretty nuanced, and so as we were writing it, we wanted to recognize the significant investment that um, people are making. You know, it, the licensing process through the CCC is fairly lengthy. Can the cannabis take years. Con cannabis Control yeah, Commission. Thank you. Of the the state. Cannabis Control Commission um, can take years, and so there are um, you know potential operators at various points of this process. Um, there. At the time we introduced this ordinance, there were 12 operating dispensaries. Since then, um, one of them, which was on Pleasant Street, the source has closed. Uh, the host community agreements are, are the purview of the mayor. Um, the other important exception in this ordinance is an exception for um, owner-operators who are in the Cannabis Control Commission Social Equity Program, um, which is designed to make it more possible um, for proprietors from communities that have been most impacted by the, um, you know, long and terrible war on drugs um, to, you know, have a chance to be a part of the market as well. So there is an exception in our ordinance um, for them. Um, so it is not a strict black and white cap at 12. There is some wiggle room, but um, 
the, as a sponsor of the ordinance, I felt it was incredibly important to try to open doors for social equity candidates as well. Yeah, I, I'd like to come back to that um, because while I think it's a great idea to, uh, to, in, to endorse and support social equity candidates, there is also another program that has been in place that does some of the same things with regard to uh, persons who would be unlikely to have the wherewithal to get into this business. But I'd like to stay with the numbers for a minute. Uh, because I think there are a couple more host community agreements that have been signed. It doesn't mean those other two will, will in fact, uh, open. But we're talking about a cap, more or less, uh, at 12. And there's a possibility of a couple more. Uh, I think, personally, that 12 is more than enough pot shops in Northampton. God, how many can we possibly have? Um, I also think the ordinance is a bad idea uh, because of its potential unintended consequences. And I think the potential benefit is really extremely limited because, well, for one thing, the social equity part of it is really unlikely to come to pass. It could, it could, um, but it's not likely. Um, but you didn't have to have a cap in order to have the social equity part. Um, so tell me why the number of pot shops, why 11 is fine or 13 is fine, but 12 is the magic number. And, 12 would endanger, more than 12 would endanger the health and safety of young people, but 12 doesn't. I, I don't really understand that, so explain it to me. Sure, yeah, that was the subject of an awful lot of discussion um, among the co-sponsors and for the months of council discussions as well. Um, you know, to be honest with you, I agree that 12 is more than a city of 29,000 people needs. Um, public health um, experts recommend um, more of... Um, one for every 19,000 res um, residents. So 12 is, uh, we have one for about every 2,500 residents. Um, when we first brought a proposal actually to the mayor's office, our suggestion was 10. Um, and the concern from the mayor's office, which we really heard, was that that would be sort of sending a message that we were hoping for existing businesses to fail, which is not the case. The dispensaries that have moved into town are conducting themselves um, well, you know, there I know there had been original concerns around traffic and crime and those sorts of things, and that's not coming to bear. And we are not hoping for existing businesses to fail, but at the same time, this is the this is our reality. If I could go back in time before we had them, I would have been a counselor in support of a cap, but I, I can't do that. So the reality we have in front of us, we have to make the best decisions as a city that that we can. Okay, I understand the timing issue, and it seems. To me, it's an important issue. I'd, I'd like to know, th though, the justification for this is uh, more pot shops uh, create more use by more young people, even though they're not allowed to buy it um, at, at, those dis at those dispensaries. Uh, I, I would appreciate understanding what difference you see it's going to make if we have 12 or we have 11. I mean, how does that difference of one or two more or less pot shops in the city going to affect the health of the citizenry? There's a whole area of social science work um, known as social norms um, and social norms marketing. It's when you drive down, I think, Route 10 and on 91, you see the billboards that say, you know, a certain percentage of Northampton parents talk to their kids about drug and alcohol use. Um, one of the greatest needs of humans is a need of belonging. Um, food, water, shelter, and then we go to belonging. It's how we keep our societies going. And so... The issue here isn't necessarily that there is a great difference between 11 shops and 12 shops. The issue is the shifting of social norms that are making it such that our city um, is sort of endorsing um, the proliferation of cannabis shops. And at the same time, young people are getting this message. And I've heard that, what you said a lot about how young people can't buy them at dispensaries, um, can't enter dispensaries, and they're doing a good job checking IDs, but that doesn't mean they're not getting cannabis from dispensaries. It doesn't mean they weren't getting cannabis long before there were dispensaries either. Correct. About 20% of youth um, are accessing um, cannabis from the illicit market, um, close to... Uh, 30 to 40 percent are accessing it from dispensaries, and we've all been under the age of 21. Me, me, one of them. Um, and you know, I didn't make moonshine when I accessed alcohol. I got it from older friends that were purchasing it legally and then sharing it with younger people. And so it would be, I think, naive to assume that that's not happening with cannabis. That you know, we all have friendships that span a few years, or you know, people that are happily, happily uh, willing to go in and, and purchase and share with younger people. So they are accessing it from dispensaries, and the, the data in Hampshire County bears that out. Okay, but back to the question that the ordinance addresses, which is the number of shops. And 
I, I have concerns, which I'll get to in a minute, about what the downside, what the potential risks of creating this cap are. Uh, but again, uh, whether there's 10 or 11 or 12 shops, you're saying that the difference of one or two makes a difference in terms of social norms and what people perceive in this community? Really? It's not the difference of one or two shops. It's the difference of the decisions that city leaders are making. And it's our job as city leaders to hold multiple ideas. So it's our job to make compromises, and none of them are perfect, but the compromise between what the public health experts in our community are telling us and the people who are you know, wanting the free market to bear itself out. Um, and it's, it's our job to hold all of these different pieces and to make the best legislation and the best um, decisions that we can for our community. So the answer to your question, again, is there a difference between 11 and 12? I don't really think so. But at the same time, hearing the concerns regarding um, the impact on the local business community, this was a compromise we felt worth making. Okay. I, uh, I, 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 I don't quite understand the, because the argument because uh, the, the city council, I understand the city council is taking a statement, no more pot shops. We've had enough. I mean, that, that's what the city council is saying. Um, we think it's bad for the community. Uh, but I wonder if there is a due consideration given for the fact that uh, the market which I, uh, and I think the market saying free market will solve all things is completely bogus. But that said, I wonder about what's going to happen. Uh, these pot shops uh, presumably have leases. They're three years or five years. Um, and at some point, the leases are going to run out. One pot shop has already failed. Um, my assumption is that the market is, in fact, saturated and that other pot shops are going to fail and that when that happens assuming it happens, uh, they will try to sell their licenses. And what it really does is set up a large out-of-state uh, company to take over the Northampton pot shops and own a whole slew of them because that's who will be in a position economically in terms of infrastructure to buy those licenses from those businesses. And that's a terrible idea, it seems to me. So I'm wondering what your response is. I mean, I don't want to see the mega corporation, pot corporation of America owning a half a dozen pot shops here and having a semi-monopoly in the city. That sounds like a danger to me, and I'm wondering what your response is. Well, a couple things. I want to go back. I do not think that having cannabis dispensaries in Northampton is bad. Not at all. I believe that people should have access to it. And again, 12 shops, people have access to it. And your point about, you know, mega corporations coming in and buying licenses, yes, that could happen, but this industry is going that direction anyway. When the source closed, it was because they were focusing on their Nevada operations. We're not talking about small mom and pop businesses here as much as we might like to. And currently they're regional, but so many industries aggregate as they grow because there's, there's um, money to be had from that. And currently the market it takes so long and so many resources, financial and otherwise, to get through the licensing process that um, you know this this is sort of the direction that that's that that's heading. Um, you know, there's um, tobacco companies are investing in cannabis. Like this is this is the direction that that is heading. Um, and so you know, it's an unfortunate reality of the cannabis market. There is a ton of money to be made from cannabis, and people who have money are investing in the market, and they're making money, and they're going to continue to make money from it. I, I would like to, to pause here for one minute. Are, are you saying that the shops that are open in Northampton are basically not locally owned, that they are really owned and operated, in effect, by uh, mega companies, out-of-state companies? I'm not saying that about all the shops, no. Um, but what I am saying is that as industries grow... Um, that's what we see with airlines, mergers, right? We see in great investments of tobacco companies in cannabis. I think it's unrealistic to think that a small regional company is going to stay a small regional company in perpetuity because there's, there's um, the free market is not necessarily going to sort itself out on this one. Does the restriction on the number of licenses uh, in Northampton promote that consolidation and aggregation of uh, power and big, big marijuana companies? I mean, that's happening anyway, you know, without a restriction right now. So that's, that's sort of happening across the country. So I, I think it's um, naive to think that what we're doing right now is working. Um, so that's, you know, something that, that is happening. 
We are speaking with Karen Foster. She is the War II City Councilor in Northampton and the Vice President of the Northampton City Council. We're talking about the restriction, the ordinance just passed, not yet signed by the mayor, uh, that restricts the number of pot shops in Northampton. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll con continue this conversation on the other side. Stay with us. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Who's on your list of favorite duos? Thelma and Louise, Batman and Robin, Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, Fred and Ginger? Here's a suggestion, Bill and Buzz. Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, lawyers who together have represented people on death row and at Guantanamo Bay, are now teaming up for Talk the Talk on WHMP. Talk the Talk, Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, weekdays at 9 and again at 4. Starting next Monday on WHMP, news, information, and the arts. I'm going down to the corner store. Sounds like the beginning of an old chestnut from a mainly bygone era. Unless you're at the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Then when you say you're going down to the corner store, you mean Cooper's Corner. And when you walk in, you might feel like you've stepped into a bygone era. It's not too big, not too fancy. Your neighbor is the person behind the counter. And Cooper's is the kind of corner market that's cornered the market on everything on your shopping list. Well, almost everything. Trash bags, cilantro, dish soap, pork chops, tempeh, paper towels, Riesling. And... Like the corner stores of old, but with a very Florence flourish, Cooper's Corner is still a mom-and-pop shop, supporting the other mom-and-pops in the valley. Salad greens from Hadley, coffee roasted in Northampton, honey from Deerfield, kombucha from Greenfield, and they've got all the stuff you need from farther afield, too. Greek olive oil, Italian pasta, German Riesling. Cooper's Corner, an old chestnut of a corner store on the corner of Maine and Chestnut in Florence. Open at 6 a.m. every day of the year. Picture perfect days here in the Valley, and there's not a better place to celebrate those perfect days than at the Bridgeside Grill in Sunderland. The Bridgeside Grill has undergone a stunning transformation and expansion, and now it's time to revisit one of your favorite spots in the Valley. Check out the new and expanded bar area and dine by the warm and cozy fire. The Bridgeside Grill is open Tuesday through Thursday starting at 11.30, Friday and Saturday starting at 8, and don't forget Sunday brunch from 8 to 2. The Bridgeside Grill, right in the heart of downtown Sunderland. It's a great night out with friends, family, or the office team. The Junior Achievement Bowling Night on Friday, February 17th at Shaker Bowl in East Long Meadow from 6 to 9 p.m. The event includes many contests, giveaways, and fun. Pre-registration is required at jawm.org forward slash bowl. Your support helps JA prepare young people for real-world career and financial success through our in-school and after-school programs. Thank you. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Bread Euphoria? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. At the Northampton Williamsburg line, there's something in the air. That sourdough crust pizza, those croissants. Smell that bread, the baguettes, that New York rye. It's euphoria, bread euphoria, bakery and cafe. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Northampton City Council Vice President Karen Foster. She is the elected Ward 2 City Councilor. We were talking about the ordinance passed last week by the Northampton City Council, 6 to 3. That is the supermajority of the council to restrict the number of pot shops in Northampton. I want to ask about a number of aspects of this we have not gotten to yet, if I might, uh, Councilor Foster. And one is the social equity piece. Um, you've made two points. One is the social equity piece is a good part of this bill. I agree with that. Um, the second is that it takes a long time and a lot of money and a lot of expertise to uh, try to open a pot shop and a long process through the uh, CCC, the Cannabis Control Commission. And it seems to me, particularly given that one pot shop is just closed here in Northampton, that it is really unlikely that we're about to have a social equity uh, uh, business come forward at this point and say, yes, this is the place where I really want to put down a stake and say, I'm going to thrive here. It just seems to me so unlikely it's going to actually have an effect. Uh, do you disagree with that? Well, I guess I go back to what I said before. What we have now isn't working in that one of our 11 dispensaries would qualify as a social equity 
um, operation. And so I guess we could say, yeah, the barriers are so high to entry in the market for social equity candidates that we could just, you know, not not see them open. Or we could do anything we can to remove a barrier. And no, this isn't going to be a magic bullet. But at the same time, what we're doing isn't working. This is something that has a social equity piece. And other cities and towns have social equity pieces. Um, Cambridge has one. East Hampton has, has one in there. So, you know, it's, it, it's again, like the timing is not ideal. It would have been great if this was done um, beforehand, but here we are. Yeah, I have no no objection. I endorse the idea of social equity mm -hmm. piece of this ordinance completely. I think that's terrific. I just don't think it's going to have any effect. You think I'm wrong? I know that doing nothing will have no effect. Okay. Uh, let me ask you this. There's another aspect of this that I, I find concerning, and that is that sometime in the future, and probably not the too distant future, the state is going to permit uh, marijuana cafes. And my concern with this ordinance is that it will uh, prohibit those cafes from opening, uh, and it is whether you think it's a good idea or a bad idea, and there's going to be obviously a lot of discussion uh, and local control over them. Uh, nonetheless, uh, it seems to me that this ordinance might uh, really be an impediment to what will be another kind of business that's going to open uh, in Northampton, and not in Northampton, certainly in the surrounding uh, communities, which is why one or more is apt to want to open here, I would think. What, you have concerns about that future? No, because this ordinance only applies to retail sales. And so it does not apply to delivery, and it would not apply to cafes. And would it prevent those or encourage those who have storefronts at this point from operating a cafe? It applies to no more than 12 dispensaries, or you know, with the exceptions we discussed, doing retail sales, which is it's defined under Mass General Laws, and it's part of the ordinance. I don't remember; I don't have the language at the tip of my tongue, um, but it, it's defined as sales being handed over the counter, not for on-site consumption. Let me ask this, uh, because we just have less than a minute left. Um, in, in your heart of hearts, do you think that the restriction, the, whether it, whatever the number is, I'm going to have to go over that again, um, is really going to have a significant benefit to Northampton? Yes. The public health experts I have spoken to have spoken very strongly in favor of a limit. And the research that they have done and the numbers they have seen show a disparity between the use of Northampton teens and teens in Hampshire County communities with fewer than five dispensaries. So whether or not we like it, however the free market is going to play this out, the shifting social norms are leading to an increase in youth cannabis use. And for that, yes, I believe this ordinance is worth it. Yeah, and I, if, I, if I thought there was a difference between 11 and 12, I might, might be with you. It's a conversation we'll continue. Karen Foster, Vice President of Northampton City Council, War II City Councilor, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillicorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at GrowFoodNorthampton.com. talk for e Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.